0: It's go time.
1: Plenty of big news coming out of the Canadian Football League this week. Some of it very sad, some of it stunning, and some of it, well, we'll get into it. Hi everybody, Don Charbon along with Heath Graham and Pat Mooney. Welcome to Third Down Gamble. First and foremost, uh, thoughts and prayers go to Jeremiah Mazzoli, who ruptured his Achilles in the second quarter of the game against Hamilton this week. And it was just a stunner for everybody there, not only the Red Blacks, but clearly the Hamilton Tiger Cat players who were on the field. He was so beloved in Hamilton. He spent the majority of his career there. Sadly, it's almost the exact same point in the field where he blew out his knee in 2019 against the Blue Bombers. Again, a non-contact play that time. That's three major injuries for Jeremiah Mazzoli. This one, of course, is a season-ender. Do we dare consider that this is it for him, that he never sets foot on the field again?
2: It's quite possible. It's just a a heartbreaking and and gut-wrenching play to watch unfold. 35 years old and a long recovery road ahead once again after basically taking a year of recovery to come back from his previous knee injury. As much as I would love to see Jeremiah Mazzoli fully healthy and back on the field again, it's at the point age-wise where he needs to consider the Next phase of his life, as well, whether that's in football or outside of football. I would not be surprised if, unfortunately, this is the last that we see of Jeremiah Mazzoli on the field.
0: At 35 years old, with a recovery of over a year, uh, it's going to take some time. I'm not sure if it's worth it coming back. We've seen players like Larry Dean recover from that at 32, 33, uh, but 35 is probably coming to the end of his career. And it's unfortunate because he was a great talent. And I think he adds a lot to the CFL and the CFL is better when Jeremiah Mazzoli is playing.
1: It happened almost a year to the day that his leg was hit by a certain rough rider in Regina. It's just so sad because there's an adage in football that sometimes plays out far too many times. You may love football, but it may not love you back. I don't want to see anybody denied, but in the same breath, he's, going to be 35 in a few weeks. He'll be off for the whole year. What kind of commitment do you have to show any more from what he did? His resume in the CFL is is fantastic. The only thing he didn't come away with, I guess, is a, is a Grey Cup championship.
2: Now, for the record, it is the opposite leg of the one that was injured in Regina. Whether it's related to that or not is hard to determine. It, often when somebody's rehabbing one leg their tendency is to overexert on the other leg that may be the case that caused some unforeseen wear and tear on that Achilles we we don't know We're we're certainly not medical experts but having suffered through a few injuries myself over my amateur sports career it wouldn't be surprising that it is somewhat related to the recovery
0: it may well be but to see it on such an innocuous looking play he doesn't seem to have any issues at all uh, moving up until that point And he just, when he snaps his Achilles, he, he just collapsed and, and it's unfortunate. I was wondering if it might've been the other leg initially, but to hear that it's that, I think you nailed it, Heath, it, it's his training.
1: It's either overtraining or compensation because you're protecting the one side, the other side has to work harder. ironically in 2019, it was that same leg where he's just experienced the ruptured Achilles that was where he had the ACL injury, just dropping back, looking to throw, and falling down, and that was it. It's sad. The game will continue. I hope for his sake that the recovery is not arduous. It will take a lot of work. He did mention in the piece that TSN ran that there were a lot of days that it was frustrating and very difficult to get motivated to keep going, but he found a way. Uh, For his sake, I would love to see him back on the field, but I also respect the fact that this could have been the last time we see him, and it's just a shame.
2: And the Red Blacks are now trying to sort out what their quarterbacking situation is going to look like for the rest of this season.
1: There was, I think, an overreaction immediately by the panel on TSN. They jumped right away and said, well, Ottawa's in real big trouble. They better go find McLeod Bethel-Thompson. Now, ironically... McLeod Bethel-Thompson has been released by the New Orleans breakers of the USFL. He is available. Do you want to bring him in? I don't know. I don't like the idea of turning away from people that you went out and signed initially to be the person that you wanted to be in that position. And now suddenly you're going to turn your back on them and say, well, you're not experienced enough. We got to go somewhere else right now.
2: Well, if you look at their situation though, Tyree Adams was one of those guys they were expecting to come in and compete for a job. He has suffered a season-ending knee injury as well. You're shortlisted with rookie Dustin Crum and journeyman Nick Arbuckle as your quarterbacks of note in Ottawa right now. Arbuckle, as they reported in the game, has had a couple of nagging injuries this season. So I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that Ottawa, out of necessity, starts shopping around. Whether a 34-year-old McLeod Bethel Thompson is the solution and whether he wants to actually return to the CFL are two nagging questions. He was released by the New Orleans Breakers to give him an opportunity to pursue NFL prospects as well as CFL. So he may be looking south of the border for other opportunities before he even considers the Red Blacks or any other CFL team that comes knocking.
0: Had McLeod Bethel-Thompson stayed in the CFL and gone to free agency, he would have been one of the most coveted free agents after leading the league in passing and having a great year with Toronto last year. I think a lot of teams would have looked at him as a a one- or two-year option, which I think Ottawa is certainly in that situation. They need to pick up someone with some experience, and and I think McLeod Bethel-Thompson, if he's willing to come to the CFL, is the best option out there.
2: They are looking at a couple of rookie options as well. Terrell Pigram who started the season with the Winnipeg Blue Bombers and was released with the return of Dakota Pro Cop, is one player that they're bringing in. And they're bringing back Jake Dunaway, who was with the Red Blacks during the preseason, had, a, had limited action in preseason games as well. The advantage for him is at least he's somewhat familiar with the Ottawa playbook coming in as a possible second or third quarterback option.
1: What do you do with Dustin Crum? I mean, he went 14 of 21, 148 yards. The problem against Hamilton he threw two picks but other than the interceptions what did he do wrong why doesn't he merit some more consideration we know that Arbuckle's injured if you've got Crum there and he's got some game experience you've got the Blue Bombers coming what's why not just toss him in and see what he can do
0: well I think right now Crum is the option for Ottawa he did have a good game he played with a lot of heart and it was you know, save for a, a tackle at the goal line, they may have had an opportunity to tie the game with a two-point convert. So uh, I think he deserves a shot to continue, but I do think if McLeod Bethel-Thompson's healthy and he can have a few weeks in, he's a more experienced cfl who's not going to turn the ball over like we saw Crum do.
1: The guy that coached McLeod Bethel-Thompson in Toronto last year, in fact, for the last couple of years, Ryan Dinwiddie has been given a contract extension by the Argonauts. His winning record, winning the Grey Cup, the Argos have seen fit that they want him to guide this roster. And to be fair to Dinwiddie, he wanted to stay. He had indicated during the the meetings in February that uh, he, if he could find a way to stay in Canada, it's a good situation for him. Great for him, great for the Argos. Uh, Dinwiddie is certainly showing himself as a really strong coach.
0: He certainly is, and I think this is a well-deserved contract offer for him. You do want to get some kind of job security. And I think he's done enough to show that not only last year when they they came on strong at the end of the year, certainly, but they've started strong as well. And so I think this is a great opportunity for Ryan Dinwiddie and the Toronto Organauts to find some stability and hopefully continue to to build on what they have.
2: The Argos took a chance on Ryan Dinwiddie as a rookie head coach and have allowed him to grow and learn in that role and are now rewarding him for leading them to that Grey Cup. He's quickly turned himself into one of the best coaches in the league. A little bit of a shaky start in his first season, if you recall. He had some clock management and and timeout issues that were very costly to the Argos. And I know there were people thinking that he should be let go after that first season, but the Argos front office saw some potential in him and have allowed him to develop into the coach that he is. Great move for them and happy to see a guy like Dinwiddie staying in the league.
1: Let's give him credit, too. Uh, under his tutelage, McLeod Bethel-Thompson flourished in Toronto. Television ratings, again, up every week, going up, 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 including that Montreal-British-Columbia game, which I was tripping towards three-quarters of a million. The CFL is finding that its audience is growing week to week to week, which is a good thing for the league, obviously. TSN's got to be happy.
0: Anytime you get more eyes on the game, I think it's a a great opportunity and and I'm glad to see it trending. Usually it takes a little later in summer to see things start to rise, but I think it's very good news for the CFL that attendance is is stable for the most part. And beyond that, people are staying home to watch the game and more and more people are tuning in.
2: We're seeing the benefit of those Sunday night games as well that they are doing early on in the season. The Sunday games seem to be very well attended and a lot of spectators watching those ones on TV. Audience numbers for
1: that game as I said uh, over 700,000. Uh, even the uh, Calgary Winnipeg game on the Friday night well over 600,000 the Elks and the Rough Riders 500,000. That's pretty decent numbers for this time of the year. Last episode we talked about the 22nd clock and I kind of said that if you wanted to ascribe to that notion that the CFL is a faster game, then you have to have a, a hard and fast clock to keep the game moving along. And I want to bring up a situation that happened this week that illuminates what I'm talking about. In the fourth quarter of the game between the Stampeders and the Blue Bombers, Winnipeg takes over the football and has a 15-play, 99-yard drive that ends in a field goal. They run 9 minutes and 29 seconds off the clock. Let's do some math. 15 plays into 9.29 of clock, 569 seconds. Divide that by 15. That's almost 38 seconds of play. Three completions, all short. The rest were running plays. There is no way that there's a 20-second clock that's speeding this game up in in that sequence.
2: Those are some staggering numbers there, Don. I'm glad you had your stopwatch out and figured that one out. Um, The Bombers did everything right in that drive to eat up as much time as possible. As you mentioned, there's only three passing plays, and the rest was running, so they kept inbounds, kept the play clock going, the game clock running. But absolutely, in all of those situations... There is no way it should be taking as much time as it does to get reset and get another play going. The
1: NFL has a 40-second clock. The CFL, if you're going to live by what we saw in this game, is close to a 38-second clock. Here is positive proof. Get a return-to-play clock. 32 seconds, you've got to get that ball back into play. When the clock is not out, then you need that. And you've got the 20-second protection in the last three minutes. Because in the last three minutes or after a timeout, a clock stoppage, 20 seconds makes total sense. Let them get sorted out, fine. You're not wasting game clock to do this. But when you're allowing a team to march down the field and just dawdle and kill nine and a half minutes of clock time on 15 plays, like, come on. Last week, we saw in the Elks-Rough Riders game, one of the most... Jaw dropping plays in CFL history. Setting the stage if he didn't happen to catch the game, minute and four seconds to go. Saskatchewan is finished scoring, getting a two point convert, tying the game with a, at 11 11. Brett Lowther, re- realizing that if he hammers the ball, he can pin Edmonton deep and maybe get lucky. Lowther hammers it, the ball bounces at about the six yard line of Edmonton, and inexplicably, C.J. Sims allows the ball to roll into the end zone, eventually grabbing the ball with no intention of getting that ball out of the end zone, goes down on one knee, concedes a single point, and the riders suddenly have taken the lead. Everybody in the universe is pointing at C.J. Sims as to why this happened. But what about Mike Shepper, the special teams coordinator for the Elks? How much of this was his problem?
0: I think this is a coaching issue. Absolutely. Mike Shepard has to communicate with his returner to say, stay deep, come up on the ball rather than have it go over your head. And I think even the head coach bears some responsibility. If you've got a rookie returner there, both the, the special teams coordinator and head coach need to address that and have the conversation and say, okay, let's make sure nothing gets behind us on that kick. You're better to stand on the goal line. Let it bounce once and hopefully bring the ball out. And to top it off, I think where Sims does bear some responsibility was the frustration he showed when one of the players probably said something like, you you blew the game, and throwing the ball in the player's face and taking the penalty just exasperates the problem, pinning him even deeper.
2: You're 100% right on this one, Pat. CJ Sims is an American-born rookie in the CFL, used to playing a game with, with touchbacks. I don't know what the solution is for the coaching staff but they need to make sure that it's very clear they need to grab that player by the face mask before he's out there and say it has to come out of the end zone bottom line we can't give up the single point whatever you have to do to get it out you have to get it out if they have signals like a baseball manager calling calling plays as well that you can signal to him even when he gets back on the field
1: This is Canadian Football 101. When you've got a rookie coming in who hasn't played the Canadian game, the very first thing you tell him is if that ball is in the end zone and you leave it there, that's a single point for the other team. That has to be indoctrinated into any kick returner. Part two of the equation, if you've got a rookie going out there and you're not sure that he understands what the consequence is, then send somebody back there who does know what the consequence is. Field position wasn't the huge issue in all of this, but not allowing the single point was a massive concern for the Elks. And that goes back to coaching. That has to go back to coaching. And of course, Twitter blows up and says, well, why do you have a single in Canadian football? Again, I will rail against the Americanization of this game. That is one of the unique factors of this game. It's got us talking about it in this podcast. Twitter was going around and round and round about who was to blame. You tell me why
2: the Rouge doesn't matter. Here is why it does. The Elks were winning the game based on Rouges in the first half. And now they, they live by the sword, they die by the sword, and they lose the game on a Rouge. I, I think it's fantastic. You have to have something in it that makes us different. The kicking game... And, and the way the ball is treated based on some of the old rugby rules is what makes our game unique to the NFL. You don't have these touchbacks and automatic field position without some sort of penalty. A one-point penalty is, is what it is. We've seen games decided on it in the past. We've seen kicking into the end zone and the receiving team kicking back out to try to kill the clock. It's a wild, wild finish. There is no reason to talk about eliminating the Rouge when things like this happen. Worst case scenario for the Elks, had Sims grabbed the ball and and fell down, was that they were going to go to overtime and have an opportunity to win it there. The fact that he made this tactical error ended up costing them the game, and it's something that I'm sure he will be very aware of on every kick return from here on out, and Again, we go back to the, the special teams coach having to tell players when it's appropriate to give up that single point and when it's not. If it's the third quarter of the game and it's it's in the situation, you're probably giving up that single for a field position because you're gonna have ample opportunities, again, to to score and to overtake the other team. When there's a minute left on the clock, you can't give up the point.
0: It's inevitable in the CFL, whenever we have a, a single that makes a difference in a game. We always have the conversation about, is it rewarding failure? But I agree with both of you wholeheartedly. It's not about rewarding failure. It's about understanding the rules and nuances of the CFL game. And to me, this is an outstanding rule that nobody needs to touch. When we have someone like Milk Stiegel, who's a TSN representative saying he'd like to see it go out, it's rewarding failure. Well, this is what makes the game fun. Just because you're an American player and you're not used to it, you need to adjust to the rules of the Canadian football game And keep this in because it adds so much to the game when you have incidents like this.
1: It's as though everybody in the stadium knew what was about to take place except the one person who had control of the situation. The emotion that comes up with this. You tell me singles don't matter? Like everybody in that stadium was just standing in disbelief.
0: Everyone in that stadium was going, what is going on here? what's happening and to see it play out like it did was phenomenal now if Edmonton had come back and driven the ball downfield and gotten field goal range we wouldn't have had the same amount of conversation about that one play as we did but when it turns the game like it did it's it's a phenomenal event
2: second down
1: Probably getting tired of it, but here we go. <laughs> rough Riders and the Elks opened the week, and the Riders win 12 to 11. We recounted for you on that single with just 103 left on the clock. Huge crowd on hand, 27,000 plus to see this one. The uh, Rough Riders and the Elks traded singles, or the, I should say the Elks had trouble getting field goals. They were getting singles. Rough Riders kick a field goal and at halftime were knotted at three and then things started to move up later and the Riders scoring nine points in the fourth quarter to win the game. The Elks come up with 21 first downs, the Riders 16. Okay, that you kind of think about. But then the Elks have 143 yards rushing, 226 yards passing. And there wasn't much in the way of turnovers. Other than the crucial one at the end. And <laughs> that one mattered.
2: One thing I saw from... Edmonton that we talked about last week was they hadn't really had much opportunity for Taylor Cornelius to run the ball. He turned it up a little bit this week with 11 carries for 58 yards and a touchdown. So a little bit more scrambling and and getting out of the pocket and moving around for Taylor Cornelius. Unfortunately for him, struggling on accuracy to find his receivers was one of the things that I, I believe cost the Elks in this game. Not a lot of offense, not a lot of points scored for Edmonton other than that one touchdown.
1: But it had Dean Faithful made a field goal, we might have been seeing a different game out there. He missed on his attempts. Uh, Trevor Harris for the Rough Riders, 19 of 29 for 292. Taylor Cornelius, 17 of 29 for 226. Of course, he gives up the last 20 seconds left in the game, interception to Nick Marshall. And I was not thrilled with Nick Marshall taking his lid off and strolling in front of the Edmonton bench. I didn't quite understand why he needed to do that. Winning the game with that interception, I thought would have been enough satisfaction. Trevor Harris, an interception in the end zone. He threw into a bracketed coverage, gets picked off, and he also had a fumble.
0: It was surprising to me when the PPF points came out this week and we saw Trevor Harris as the highest-ranking quarterback. To see both Harris and Mitch Pickton being the highest-ranked receiver and their offensive line scoring highest as a unit was very surprising given the fact that there was a real dearth of offensive plays save for a couple long drives, the one where Harris threw the interception in the end zone and the one at the end of the game.
1: Rough Riders also turned the ball over on downs inside the 10-yard line of the Elks. This game had a lot of different nuances that it could have taken had teams been successful getting into the end zone early. It didn't work out. The score stayed down. Now the Elks are 0-5. First time in 58 years that that franchise has gone 0-5. Of course, people are calling for Chris Jones' ouster. This is not the time nor the place to do this, even if he is on a series of one-year contracts, you've got to let this play out. You can't tell me that the Elks are worse now than when they started the season.
2: If we're watching the Dylan Mitchell receiving yardage tracker on his race for 2000, uh, Three receptions for 20 yards, which is going to bring his season total up to somewhere around 100 yards, I believe. So uh, a long, a long... long. 61 yards. 61 yards, I stand corrected. So, so he's 1,939 away. <laughs> the leading receiver for the Elks was Stephen Dunbar with three receptions for 49 yards. So really a, an inability to move the ball deep down the field is hurting the Elks right now.
1: Let's put this in another context too, and I'm not trying to give... Edmonton a pass on everything, but let's consider this. The game that they had played on Thursday was their fifth in 25 days. The last three were played over the last 12 days of that 25 days, with two of them being road games, one in Ottawa, Eastern Time Zone, and Regina. Now they played a Rough Rider team that had just come off a bye. Bye teams, teams coming off the bye, are undefeated so far this year. So a lot of things were kind of queuing up against them. And Chris Jones said in his post-game presser that his defense were tired. And we saw that they called a timeout with just around two minutes to go. He said he had to do it because his defense was like they were just played out at the end.
0: I think it was also a, a good time to call a timeout, and the fact that if the riders are successful, you're going to leave some time on the clock to be able to move down the field for a field goal. But certainly, the Edmonton defense was tired. Uh, that's a lot of games. And I think they're now in a situation where a team is struggling. Right. Teams that are doing well and winning seem to get those lucky breaks. And it seems that Edmonton can't find a break right now. To say Saskatchewan's a good team, well, they have not done very well. They've scratched out a few games here. I think when they start to play better competition like they did against Winnipeg, we may see this team not doing as well. And that could start as early as this week against Calgary. But Edmonton deserved, I think, to win that game. Saskatchewan made the plays they had to and save for one player's mistake or coach mistake. Edmonton could have had that game.
1: Well, there's more to it than just what happened at the very end of the game with the single point. I mean, let's, we've already recounted that there was a touchdown call back. Steven Dunbar went for a score. It was called back by holding. Mm-hmm.
0: Alford had one too. So I mean again, you kick the field goal, you get the it it's six of one half a dozen of another. But what I saw there, I guess, is is two teams that weren't very successful in doing what they needed to do to win that game.
1: One of the things they could have done partway through that fourth quarter. They, they, they owned the field position in that fourth quarter. They absolutely owned it. They were hovering around midfield. They could have punted for another single and go up by nine. And that would have changed the dynamics completely had they done it. But they kept trying to pin the riders, which is quite a reasonable course of action. Keep them as far away from your goal line as you can. Friday night, the Blue Bombers head back home, take on a Western opponent, the Calgary Stampeders. Stampeders give it a good count of themselves, get up 10 to nothing, and then the Blue Bombers start to get rolling, and by game's end, they win 24 to
2: 11. This was a, a tough start for the Blue Bombers coming off of their previous home loss where they got it handed to them by the BC Lions. There was six quarters where they had scored a total of seven points and zero touchdowns. They finally turned things around. They got a touchdown late in the second quarter tied the game up going into halftime and really took control in the second half.
0: This is typical of what we've seen with Winnipeg. They tend to play well towards the end of the game. And we certainly had a great second half in this game. Winnipeg hasn't been the dominant force that we've seen to this point. And, and, uh, you know, when Calgary came out, I wasn't sure if Winnipeg would fold, but we can see that character in the team again. They seem to be able to make the corrections they need to do and do what they need to do to pull it out in the second half.
1: Calgary's... Jake Mayer goes 14-25 of for 122 yards. One interception. Tommy Stevens comes in to mop up one of four for five yards. Zach Kolaris, a nice night. 20-28 of for 231 and two touchdown passes. Winnipeg's defense isn't that vaunted powerhouse that it was a couple of years ago. It's still managing to throw shutouts in the fourth quarter. And when you're trying to win football games, that's huge.
2: A big night by the... Two defensive tackles, Jackson Jeffcoat and Willie Jefferson. Another couple of pass knockdowns. Interestingly, Jeffcoat has zeros on the stat line, but he was all over the pressures and getting involved in the play and and creating some havoc on Jake Mayer. Winnipeg just seems to have not had both the offense and defense firing at the same time. They came out of the gate on offense at the start of the year, scoring over 40 points in the first two games and then sputtered a little bit. The defense has stepped up now and was really, I believe, a, a key cog in winning this game was the way that defense played.
1: I'm thinking relief is coming soon with Kenny Lawler, provided that all of his legal issues are sorted out in terms of being able to work in Canada. If that comes along, that will help the offense if Lawler becomes available to them they figured about six weeks Well, we're getting to that point
2: point. and linebacker Kyrie Wilson was a full participant in practice this week as well coming off of an Achilles injury we haven't seen him yet this season so that's another piece on the defense that is going to help stabilize things uh, for the Bombers as well
1: 30,000 plus at IG field to watch this game great attendance numbers early in the season Saturday night, Ottawa goes to Tim Hortons Field to take on the Tiger Cats. At Tim Hortons Field, the Tiger Cats finally win for the first time this year, 21-13 over the Red Blacks. Of course, we've recounted what happened with Jeremiah Mazzoli going out in the second quarter and that sad event. For the Red Blacks, in terms of their passing, Mazzoli was 6-10 of for 37 yards. He had a pick. And, of course, Dustin Crum, who finished the game, 14 of 21, 149. And he did run for a touchdown. On the other side, Matthew Schiltz gets the win, 19 of 26, 233. He had an interception, but the big thing was Hamilton scored a touchdown.
0: We we knew that Hamilton had it in them to be able to do that. And and I thought they played a, a good game in the fact that they didn't turn the ball over much. Uh, there was the interception, of course, that Schultz threw. But for the most part, they they controlled the game and did what they needed to do. And then at the end of the game, their defense stepped up. When Crum took off for the goal line from the 20-yard line, I thought he had a great opportunity. But Chris Edwards closed and, and made a great hit in the open field and saved the, the score. I mean, they would have still had to get a two-point convert, but it, it was a great play by their defense when it needed to happen.
2: Unfortunately for Crum, There was not any lead blocking out in front of him on that. It was kind of a a naked run, and he was running into the teeth of that Hamilton Tiger Cats defense. Almost made it about a yard and a half shy, so a great effort from him. As you mentioned earlier, Pat, he played with a lot of heart and and showed some great things. If he can work on the ball security a little bit, an unfortunate fumble, and one interception that he did throw to Hamilton. The other one was on a double-tipped ball that Simone Lawrence came down with can't really pin that one 100% on, on Crum, but that's two picks and a fumble, and that was the difference in this game. Most importantly for the Tiger
1: Cats, it's their offense. They they are 0-5 inside the 20. In other words, they get into that score zone and they can't put it in. The touchdown that they got was well past, from well past midfield. So it was out the broke and they went down the sidelines and scored on the one play so when they're marching down the field and getting close enough where you should be able to punch it in they are settling for field goals I did
0: feel good for Mark Leggio making those field goals when he got a chance to get up he was he was 100% on the night and it's good to see him having a little more confidence and maybe with the uncertainty of what happened in Winnipeg and people kind of doubting him he's able to refocus and and do a great job of kicking in this game
1: Sergio Castillo and Mark Leggio, both who were ousted from their teams, haven't missed a field goal this year. Sunday night, Montreal goes to British Columbia to take on the Lions. The Alouettes hang tough in the first half, don't have anything in the second half but two field goals, and the Lions win running away 35-19 over the Alouettes. Montreal started the game with an interception score, and it was called back on what I would think is a dubious pass interference call.
0: Yeah, when that happened, I wonder if we would see Vernon Adams Jr. have a bit of a confidence shake up, but he seemed to recover well from that, fact that it was called back, and then after that he played a good game controlling the ball. So he didn't fall back into the troubles he had the week previous.
1: This was
2: a big, ba- big bounce back game for Vernon Adams after six interceptions the previous week and protected the ball well and moved it when they had to.
1: It was a question in my mind after Marc-Antoine Ducroix had picked that ball off and taken it to the house on their opening drive, whether or not Adams would be a little bit shy, but he threw some great balls the rest of that series once the penalty took away the touchdown and led the Lions down the field. BC at home are a really dominant force. Adams Jr., for his part... 20 of 25 for 283 and a touchdown. Cody Fajardo, sort of a bounce back game for him. 24 of 39, 280
2: yards. Another stat here, we have a new running back in BC that had a little bit of excitement. Sean Shivers came in in injury relief as running back and uh, had 14 carries for 63 yards. Longest run was 18. He had a little bit of razzle-dazzle and we'll see what happens with the future of that Lions running game.
1: One wonders what's happening with William Standback in Montreal. Six carries for 17 yards. Either the Alouettes aren't trusting him or their offensive design is just moving away from him.
0: And that puts a lot of pressure on the offensive line because we see again they took or let seven sacks go again. Cody Fajardo is now on pace for 99 sacks in the year. That's a tremendous amount of sacks. And we know he had difficulties in Saskatchewan. Uh, He tends to hold that ball a little bit long. And and if you don't have a running game established, teams can just pin their ears back and go after Cody, Cody Fajardo. And they are doing that with a lot of success this year.
1: Jason Moss was with Fajardo last year when Saskatchewan led the league in sacks allowed. Just saying.
2: Third down
1: full slate of games in the CFL this week. A mix of intra-divisional versus inter-divisional games. One thing I'd like to point out, last year at this time, there had been 13 games between the East and the West, and the West had won 12 of the 13. This year, there have been seven games, and it's a 4-3 lead for the West. Two things out of that. Much more emphasis on games within your division, which is great to start the year. And secondly, the East is no pushover. And that trend started at the end of 2022. Hamilton goes to Edmonton, taking their one-game winning streak into Commonwealth Stadium. The Elks, of course, 0-5 heading into this. Of course, their infamous 19-game losing streak at home is on the line. If they can break that... One thing about uh, watching the O show on the Hamilton Tiger Cats website, Orlando Steinhauer, the head coach of the Tiger Cats, was very frank about saying that if you take, if either takes the other lightly, look out. One th- uh, Craig Dickinson, and I'll give him credit for this, even though the records are desperate, he, the, the gap between the talent pools on each team is very minor, and I agree with that.
0: I believe this. Could be the week that Edmonton actually stops the losing streak. I think they have a great opportunity coming in here with Hamilton struggling so far this year. Edmonton has shown glimpses. I think that last week's game, even though it was a demoralizing loss at the end, gives them some hope because they played very well defensively in that game. And and I would hope that they're maybe going to win this as well, because I think 20 games losing in a row is a pro sports record, not just a CFL record, but a pro sports record. And if they can break that before they hit those 20 games, uh, this would be the game to do it. So I'm actually going to take Edmonton to win, but not beat the spread.
2: If Edmonton does not win this game at home, this is the last time I'm picking them to win at home this season. I'm going to give the nod to the Elks and the Elks fans. The losing streak comes to an end this week or not at all this season. Taking the Elks, and they are going to cover the spread as well.
1: I'm picking the Elks as well, partly because of what they've done the last two weeks, especially that defense is rounding into shape. The Thai Cats though, have a pretty good defense themselves, which is rounding into shape. This is really going to come down to turnovers and who makes the fewest, and maybe who makes the turnover at the most inopportune time could determine this football game. I'm going to pick the Elks, I think, It's about time that this streak ends. Toronto comes off the bye week and plays in Montreal. Toronto has had two bye weeks in the first five weeks of the schedule. The Argonauts, five and a half to four and a half point favorites. We'll just say for the sake of argument, it's five and a half. Montreal, of course, out in BC on Sunday, have to trek all the way across the country to get back home. And... Get ready for the Argonauts. I'm picking the Argonauts. I like the fact that they are coming off the bye. Bye teams have not lost, and the Alouettes have gone through three different time zones to get home.
2: A real wrinkle in the schedule, as you mentioned, with Toronto having only played three games and having two byes already, with Edmonton and Winnipeg yet to have a bye and still not this current week. I love what Chad Kelly has done with that Toronto offense so far this season. I really like Toronto's defense as well. So I am giving them the nod in this one. And yes, they will cover that spread.
0: Make it unanimous. Toronto will take this one. They will cover the spread. And uh, this is not the one that Montreal is going to win.
1: Let's give some love to Corey Mace, the defensive coordinator for the uh, Toronto Argonauts. Has he done a job in his two years there? Saturday, we've got a doubleheader. The Winnipeg Blue Bombers are in Ottawa to take the very decimated Ottawa Red Blacks on. Winnipeg on the road is a nine and a half point favorite. Can you
2: provide a reason why they can't cover? No. Winnipeg wins and covers. This is the opportunity for Winnipeg's offense to get back on track. The defense has stepped up, and now we've got a rookie quarterback for Ottawa making his first start after going in in relief duty. The one thing that Ottawa has going for them is that running, scrambling ability that Justin Crum showed in that in that game last week. But I don't think he is quite ready to face the likes of that Winnipeg defensive line and linebacking core. This one's going to be a blowout for Winnipeg.
0: I agree. I think Winnipeg is set to feast on this one. Nine and a half points seems like a lot, but uh, I think they should cover this fairly easily. I do think... Ottawa has some great defensive players, but as a unit, they just haven't seemed to gel. I think offensively, they haven't found themselves and losing another quarterback last week is just not going to help them. Hopefully, Crum comes out, has a good game. I'd love to see them get within that nine and a half, but I
1: don't think it's going to happen. To be fair to Ottawa, this is a pretty good defense. Once again, they've only allowed 73 points in their first four games. That's actually third best in the league. If they can keep the score low, Ottawa has a chance, but they have to really rely on that defense to do that for him. If Baron Miles has enough answers for Zach Calaris, who knows? Maybe Ottawa stands a chance, but ultimately, when you look at this on paper, Winnipeg, heavy favorites. How can you argue that?
2: Winnipeg's offensive line needs to keep Lorenzo Malden in check, and if they do that, they're going to be successful.
1: The late game on Saturday sees a rematch of the Calgary Stampeders and the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. I say rematch because the Riders were in Calgary a couple of weeks ago, winning in overtime. Nick Marshall, of course, with an interception in overtime to end that game. Calgary, Jake Mayer, I, if he's going to show something, he has to start doing it now. This is where, if he wants that job, he has to start showing the coaches that this is why you have faith in me. At
0: this point in the season, Saskatchewan has played to the competition and has made every game fairly close. If there's any game that could be a trap game, this may be it. If Jake Mayer can get on track and have the performance that I think Calgary was hoping he could have, Calgary could take this game. Having said that, I think Saskatchewan at home is a tough team to play. I think, The Edmonton game last week might have been a bit of a wake-up call for Saskatchewan, and I do think that they're going to win this one and cover, but it's going to be a close game.
2: I'm with you on this one, Pat. I did successfully pick Saskatchewan to go into Calgary and eke out that win, and I like them at home in the rematch coming back. It is going to be a a matter of if Jake Mare can get his offensive numbers up and get going this season. We haven't seen it yet. And I don't like his chances against the Rough Riders.
1: If Mayer doesn't throw for 300, the Stampeders are going to lose. Mark and Michelle will be another week into the offense. That's going to help. The Rough Riders are hurting in their receiving core. That's going to hurt them. This is really going to come down to whether or not Calgary's offense can get going. If they can't, then the Rough Riders' defense will eat them up and Trevor Harris will do enough to win the game for the Rough Riders. At 1.5 favourites, that's an easy pickem. Thank you for listening to our show. Third Down Gamble is
2: hosted on Podbean and can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter at Third Down Gamble. Join
1: us again at the Third Down Gamble podcast. Audio worth watching.
0: Third Down Gamble uses the expert resources provided by Canadian Football League Player and Game Statistics for analytics, game notes, and statistics, and 3downnation.com for news, insight, and in depth analysis. Please visit cfl.ca and 3downnation.com for the most up-to-date information on the Canadian Football League.